campers welcome to museum camp i'm megan i'm mamison what is up what's up what is up <laughs> um guess what megan campers you ready it's immature history baby i hope you're ready on your marks <laughs> um okay it's my turn yeah to start let's let's hear it let's hear it um, today I'm going to read an article from NPR. Okay. Um, this is from their, uh, column, the salt, um, which is sure. like food stuff, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Um, this is written by Adam Cole, January 17th of 2012. Um, and the title of this is drink coffee off with your head. Uh Oh, whoops. <laughs> Um, okay. Most folks who resolve to cut down on coffee this year are driven by the simple desire for self-improvement, but for Mm -hmm. coffee drinkers in the seven in 17th century Turkey, there was a much more concrete motivating force, a big guy with a sword. Sure. Uh, Sultan Murad the fourth, a ruler of the Ottoman empire would not have been a fan of Starbucks under his rule. (laughs) The consumption of coffee was a capital offense. I don't know. I think, um, you know, one sip of a Frappuccino, that guy might change his tune. Yeah. Yeah. Just takes one sip. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Sultan was so intent on eradicating coffee that he would disguise himself as a commoner and stalk the streets of Istanbul with a hundred pound broadsword. Unfortunate coffee drinkers were decapitated, decapitated as they sipped. So oh, what is rude. this guy's deal? I, it sucks ass. I hate him. Murad the fourth successor was more lenient. The punishment for a first offense was a light cudgeling. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. Um, caught with coffee a second time, the perpetrator. <laughs> this is so fucked up. The perpetrator oh was sewn into a leather bag and tossed <gasps> in the river. It escalates so fast. <laughs> <laughs> sewn into every tailor yeah, in town is just, just like again. <laughs> this is the fourth one this week. I'm sick of this. Um, but people still drink coffee, even with the Sultan at the front door with a sword and the executioner at the back door with a sewing kit, they still wanted their daily cup of Joe. And you that's the risk history. It to get the <laughs> you got to risk it. That is the moral of the story. Yeah. Uh, and that's the history of coffee in a bean skin. I don't know what that means. A bean skin. I don't either. <laughs> oh, maybe it's like in a nutshell. Oh, old habits <laughs> die hard. Hey, I say nutshell. Like yeah, don't say bean skin. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever say bean skin. <laughs> no one that. Yeah, just call it a scrotum. <laughs> um, wherever it spread, coffee was popular with the masses, but challenged by the powerful. Quote, if you look at the rhetoric about drugs that we're dealing with now, like say crack, it's very similar to what was said about coffee end quote. Stuart mm. Allen, author of The Devil's Cup, Coffee, the Driving Force in History, tells the salt. In Mirad's Istanbul, religious leaders per- preached on street corners that coffee would inspire indecent behavior. As the bean moved west into Europe, physicians rallied against it, claiming that coffee would, quote, 
dry up the cerebrospinal fluid and cause paralysis. How would they know? Yeah. Perhaps the bodiest argument against coffee was the woman's petition against coffee published in England in 1674, brimming with innuendos that would make Shakespeare blush. The six page manifesto blamed coffee for every type of impotence. Uh, Well, and when was, when was this? Uh, this specific instance, instance was 1674. Because I'll tell you from what I've learned, um, from studying the history of beverages, cause I have, yeah. yes, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In England, um, when coffee was first brought there and really up until like, I believe into the 1800s coffee shops were only a place for men. And like, mm-hmm. it was, um, uh, a, a, a big way to like discuss, you know, philosophy and, but like, I absolutely, if I was kept out of that as a woman, I would be like, I'd be pissed and I'd call them all impotent. Yeah, that's right. Um, (laughs) Monarchs and tyrants publicly argued that coffee was poison for the bodies and souls of their subjects. But Mark Pendergrast, author of Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World, says their real concern was political. Quote, coffee has a tendency to loosen people's people's imaginations and mouths, he tells the salt, (laughs) and inventive chatty citizens scare dictators. According to one story, an Ottoman grand vizier, vizier, how do you say that? V-I-Z-I-E-R. I think either way that you just said it is fine. Great. Depending um, on whether or not you're French. You yeah. Know. Well, you know, I'll, it's up to you to decide everyone. Um, <laughs> but anyway, according to, one, yeah, according to one story, that guy secretly visited a coffee house in Istanbul. Uh, quote, he observed that people drinking alcohol would just get drunk and sing and be jolly. Whereas the people drinking coffee remained sober and plotted against the government. Uh that's really my style too (laughs) yeah um coffee fueled dissent not just the ottoman empire but or not just in the ottoman empire but all through the western world Hmm. the french and american revolutions were planned in part in the dark corners of coffee houses in germany a fearful frederick the great demanded that germans switch from coffee to beer (laughs) Uh, he sent soldiers sniffing through the streets searching for the slightest whiff of the illegal bean In England, King Charles II issued an order to shut down all coffee houses after he traced some clever but seditious poetry to them. The backlash Hmm. was throne-shaking. In just 11 days, Charles reversed his ruling. Hmm. Quote, I think maybe he recalled that they had beheaded his father, Pendergrass says. He didn't want to stir up too much trouble. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. And so it's fair and smart. And so coffee took its place in the center of culture where so many other underground movements, religious, political, even musical were squashed. Coffee managed to go mainstream. According to legend, even the Pope Clement the eighth couldn't resist coffee's charms. After inspecting the drink, he remarked to his skeptical advisors, quote, why this Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let the infidels have infidels have exclusive use of it. <laughs> so good. Uh, so to all you caffeine fasteners and New Year's resolvers, I say good luck. I hope you have more discipline than the Pope and more strength than the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> I hope everyone has more discipline than the Pope. 
Yeah, those guys don't have a great track record. Not doing great, guys. <laughs> All right. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Um, okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Atlas Obscura as I have them for the past few weeks. We love them. Um, and the article that I'm gonna read is called The Great Harvard PN of 1973. Cool, okay. cool, 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 cool. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah. In 1973, a group of outraged female Harvard activists took to the steps of the school's historic Lowell Hall and poured out jars of fake urine. The powers that be really should have let them use the bathroom. Oh, God. The Harvard PN of 1973 was the brainchild of legendary rabble rouser and activist Florence Flo Kennedy. One of the first Black women to graduate from Columbia Law School in 1951, Kennedy practiced law prior to devoting her life to activism. Inspired to battle discrimination and inequality, she often fought for the feminist and African-American causes, becoming known for her radical, outspoken, and provocative rhetoric and actions. Kennedy was instantly recognizable by her Ico iconoclastic look, often sporting a cowboy hat, pink sunglasses, and loud outfits while she was out protesting the Miss America pageant or lecturing alongside other feminist luminaries such as Gloria Steinem. In a lengthy obituary in the New York Times, uh, Kennedy passed away in 2000, former New York Mayor David Dinkins was quoted as saying, if you found a cause for the downtrodden of somebody being abused someplace, by God, Flo Kennedy would be there. Love Flo. Incredible. So when some female students at Harvard realized that something had to be done about the lack of female bathrooms, they went straight to Kennedy. I also, I have to show you a picture of her because she's literally wearing a vest, a, a cowboy hat, and just like holding up the middle finger. Oh my It's God. a beautiful picture. Oh, we love to see it. In the early 1970s, Harvard was embroiled in a fight to bring the ratio of female to male students up to 50-50. Um, the ratio of men-women at Harvard didn't become even until 2007, by the way. And issues of feminism at the school were on everyone's minds. But the question of where all the female students would be able to go to the bathroom at the historically male university wasn't necessarily everyone's priority. And yet, in at least one situation, the lack of available restrooms was actively affecting females' ability to successfully enroll. In 1973, women took their exams in Lowell Hall, a historic campus building that was equipped with exactly one bathroom. And it was only for dudes. <laughs> Classic. I just <sighs> Women taking part in the lengthy timed exam process had to leave the building and head across the street to use the women's bathroom, taking up crucial minutes and actively advantaging, advantaging? I don't know. Sure. That's Male funny. applicants <laughs> who didn't have to worry about such inconveniences. 
This would not stand. And finally, one third year Harvard student reached out to Kennedy for a solution. Kennedy had been quoted earlier in the year by Harvard Crimson, quote, if you had to give the world an enema, you would put it in Harvard Yard. This has hmm. got to be the asshole of the world. <laughs> Kennedy. I mean, such a good slam. <laughs> right. <laughs> when approached, she asked when the next exam was set to take place and devised a unique protest to bring attention to the issue. According to an extensive firsthand account of the event from 1990, Kennedy dubbed her action a protest pee-in on the Harvard Yard. Together with a group of fellow female activists, Kennedy led her protest group around Harvard Yard. They carried signs and banners with slogans like, to pee or not to pee, that is the question. And will the dean let women use his personal toilet? Uh, most evocatively, many of them also carried jars of bright yellow liquid. The group had gathered a crowd of onlookers as Kennedy finally took the steps of Lowell Hall and spoke. Kennedy gave a characteristically impassioned speech about the importance of gender equality and bathroom availability, uh, pointing out how the disparity led to women feeling inwardized by the exclusion. She highlighted the fact that Harvard was built by men to cater to men, but that women have always been a huge part of the school's fabric, if not always as students, then as secretaries and other workers. The lack of bathrooms wasn't just an inconvenience. It was the sign of institutionalized inequality at the school. After Kennedy finished speaking and a poem about pay toilets was read, I would love to read that poem. <laughs> Uh, the assembled activists, one after another, took turns pouring the symbolic pee on the steps of Lowell Hall. You know, there was one of them, at least, that was like, oh, oh, yeah, definitely yeah, fake, fake pee. I definitely yeah. uh, didn't, you know, not read the room. And yeah, I knew we actually were all doing pee fake into a jar. Pee. <laughs> yeah, I knew it. I knew that. Yeah, I knew it. According to that same 1990 account, one of the onlookers called Fowl, complaining that she thought they were actually going to urinate on the steps, <laughs> even offering to do it herself. Oh, my God. But at this, Kennedy quieted the crowd, saying, let the dean of Harvard be warned, unless Lowell Hall gets a room for women so that women taking exams don't have to hold it in, run across the street, or waste time deciding whether to pee or not to pee. Next year, we will be back doing the real thing. Hmm. It's unclear whether or not Kennedy's protests led to any immediate changing of the bathroom rules in Lowell Hall. But according to a 2012 survey of Harvard bathrooms, the campus now has 91 gender non-specific restrooms across residential buildings, classroom buildings, and restrooms available in businesses. The school has come a long way from the days when women had to go on a minor field trip just to relieve themselves. But all of the handy places to urinate that exist today may have never opened their doors without the women who peed on the steps of Lowell Hall. Incredible. We love it. I love it. We love a good protest. Yeah. Oh, wow. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks. And campers. Thank you. Oh, campers. We love you guys. 
truly. And Um, we will see you next time. Yep, we sure will. See you then.